like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But Saul held his peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us and for our good. Let's pray together now and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father, You are the sovereign God over all the earth. You have spoken everything into existence. Everything that we see belongs to You because You've made it. That includes us and our lives. Father, And You have spoken clearly in the Scriptures here in the Old and New Testament so that to know the Bible is to know the mind of God revealed for us and for our good. We ask, Father, now that You would come and work by Your Spirit to open Your Word to us, Your people, that we would understand what You have said, that Your Word would go down deep into our souls and do the work that You've intended for it to do, to magnify Christ and to build us up after His image. Father, protect us from error. Protect us from the foolishness of our own thinking. Lord, give us wisdom from the Word of God. Give us insight. Give us direction. Cause Your Word to be sharp this morning, Father, that it would pierce down to the division of soul and spirit, that it would go deep into our hearts and minds. Keep me from error, Father. Give Your people discernment. Work now among us through Your Word, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, for such an important public event, what happens here at the end of chapter 10 is surprising. Imagine going to a birthday party where the person being celebrated can't be found. Or a wedding without the bride and groom showing up. It would be strange, wouldn't it? The whole reason for the celebration would be lost. Well, that's something of what happens here in this passage. This is Saul's public coronation as the king of Israel. You'll remember from last week that Samuel had privately anointed Saul earlier. But now the time has come to go public with that news. And yet here at the coronation, Saul is not in the spotlight all that much. He doesn't even speak. In fact, the only time Saul is in the spotlight, it's after he's been hauled out of hiding. You see, for such a public and important ceremony, it's downright strange. And that, of course, raises a question, what exactly is going on here at Saul's coronation? What is it that God intends for us to see from this surprising scene? We confess that all Scripture is God-breathed and given to us for our good. So what's the good here? Well, the answer, friends, has to do with the prophet Samuel, not Saul. If you start at the beginning of the passage, you'll notice Samuel is always directing the action. Scan through the text again with me and notice this. Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. Verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people. And again, later in the verse, then Samuel sent all the people away. So do you see the pattern? This may be Saul's coronation, but Samuel is running the show. 
Now, why is that significant? Because Samuel is the Lord's prophet. It is through Samuel that God's Word comes to God's people. And that's the connection we're meant to make in this surprising coronation. Even here at Saul's public moment, it's not the king who's directing the life of Israel. It's not the king. It's God's Word governing and directing and guiding. You see, brothers and sisters, that's the main point of the text. Saul's coronation reminds us that at all times, it is God's Word that stands at the center of our life as God's people. This is why later, when the Lord Jesus would come, the true King over God's kingdom, He would say to the evil one at His moment of testing, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Christ. And that's the same truth we see here. At all times, it is the Word of God that stands at the center of our life as God's people. So with that theme in mind, here's what I'd like for us to do. I want to work through the surprising coronation of Saul, paying attention to four ways that God's Word works. Or we could say four effects that God's Word has on the life of His people. The first is found in verses 17 to 19 where we see that God's Word rebukes. God's Word rebukes. Right from the start, we see this is not your typical coronation. The ceremony doesn't begin with a joyful procession. There are no parades. There are no boisterous choirs singing songs of celebration. No, this coronation actually begins with a rebuke, with a confrontation. Did you notice it when we read? Samuel essentially repeats his warning from chapter 8. In asking for a king, the people of Israel have rejected God. But this time, the rebuke is even stronger than before. Notice specifically Samuel's message and how it starts in verse 18. And Samuel said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Friends, that is the standard prophetic introduction. When you read the phrase, thus says the Lord, it's like a flashing neon sign that God is speaking directly and clearly to His people. These are not merely Samuel's words. This is not Samuel's reminder. This is God's Word confronting and rebuking His people. As the rebuke unfolds, the Lord continues to personally address the nation. Notice the emphatic eyes, the emphatic pronouns there in verse 18. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. The Lord is reminding Israel of who He is. He is their Redeemer and Defender. Their entire existence as a people owes to this gracious God who intervened when they could not help themselves. Don't miss how deeply personal this is, brothers and sisters. Israel has not known God from a distance like some absentee landlord or estranged father. Israel has known God up close and personal. Think about it. They saw His hand part the sea. They felt His glory thunder on the mountaintop. They marveled at the day when He caused the sun to stand still. They tasted His provision every day when He brought bread from the sky. And that's just scratching the surface. The Lord has revealed Himself to Israel in a deeply personal way. Not distant, but near. And yet, what did they do? How have they responded? They rejected 
this personal God who has graciously drawn near to them. That's the point Samuel drives home in verse 19. He takes God's clear word and he presses it hard upon the people. Notice what he says, verse 19. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you have said, set a king over us. So just as God's revelation was personal, their rejection of Him is personal. It's such a sad statement. The God who saves has been traded for a king like the nations. And that's how the coronation of Israel's first king begins. Not with a celebration, not with a parade, not with any songs of joy, but with a rebuke from the Word of God. And so, we must ask the necessary question, why does God begin this way? It's not as though the people haven't heard this before. If you go back just two chapters to chapter 8, you'll read nearly the exact same message, but just in more detail. So it's not like they, they don't know this. So what is God doing? Why does God bring another rebuke? The answer, friends, is actually good news. God brings another rebuke because the Lord is unwavering in the pursuit of His people. That's why. He will not let up. You could say He's stubbornly gracious. God rebukes His people with the aim of repentance. He will not let up. You see, this is where we so often think wrongly about God. We assume He rebukes His people because He's frustrated or angry. Maybe you even read those three verses in your mind with an angry voice from God. But brothers and sisters, that's not the character of the Lord. He rebukes His people because He loves them. He confronts our rebellion because we belong to Him. God ignores those who are not His until the last day. And He rebukes those who belong to Him. It makes me think of that wonderful old hymn that we just sang last week, O love that will not let me go. We keep turning our back and God keeps coming, always with His Word and always for the purpose of seeing us return to Him. So, brothers and sisters, consider how this one truth about God changes the way we understand the Christian life. When God's Word exposes your sin, it's because He loves you enough to show you the truth about your heart. When God's Word corrects your misperception, it's because He's merciful enough to give you the wisdom you lack. And when God's Word challenges your way of thinking, it's His kindness to not leave you where you are, but to continue His good work of conforming you to the image of His Son. You see, in all of these instances, the Lord is not angry. He's not angry. He's actually pursuing us through His Word, just as He did here with Israel. It's such a precious truth, friends. And I pray one, it's one that will change our perspective on how God works. The Lord will not leave His people in their rebellion. He's always pursuing those who belong to Him even when it requires rebuke or discipline. That is God's fatherly kindness returning us again and again to Himself. And for that, brothers and sisters, we should give Him thanks. God's Word rebukes, and it's always for the purpose of our growth. 
As we continue on in the passage, we come to verses 20 to 24, and we see the second way that God's Word works. God's Word reveals. Not only does God's Word rebuke, but God's Word also reveals. Samuel has assembled the people together, and now the time has come to grant their request and set a king over them. But still, how will this happen? How do you pick one king out of a whole nation of people? How do you make sure you get the right person? Well, notice what happens in verse 20. The people cast lots to determine the Lord's choice. And each time the field is narrowed from nation to tribe to clan until Saul, the son of Kish, is selected. Now, this might seem like little more than random chance to us. Some people have described casting lots like rolling dice or, or, or something like that, but that's not entirely accurate. That's, casting lots were not like shooting dice or something. If you remember, in the law of Moses, God had given His people what He called the Urim and the Thummim. Do you remember that? Probably not, because it's buried somewhere in Leviticus or Numbers, which is important. You should read those books. The Urim and the Thummim. These were apparently two different colored stones. They were two stones and they were kept in the breastplate of the high priest's robe. And in moments of decision, they would, the people would get these stones and they would use them to discern God's will. That's very likely what's going on right here in 1 Samuel. But regardless of the specifics, the point that I want us to see is that the people are not simply going on chance to select a king. This is not random. This is precisely how God's Word said to handle these decisions. They're following God's revelation. By casting lots, the people depend on the teaching of God's Word, as foreign as the casting of lots sounds to us. Now, before we go on, I want to pause here and make just something clear. This moment in chapter 10, is not meant to give us a method of decision-making for today. We shouldn't cast lots or flip a coin to determine whether or not to take a new job or buy a different house. Remember, we have God's Spirit indwelling us as the blessing of the new covenant, and we have God's Word completed for us in the Scriptures. Those are the means, God's Spirit applying God's Word. Those are the means of discerning God's will today, so we don't need to cast lots. There is, however, an application for us regarding our view of God, and it has to do with God's sovereignty. You see, the casting of lots reminds us how foundational God's sovereignty is to the biblical worldview. All through the Scriptures, the biblical authors assume this truth. God runs the universe. They assume this truth. The argument for God's sovereignty is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means He runs everything, even down to the casting of lots. Remember that clear statement from the book of Proverbs. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So according to the Bible, there is no random. There is only the Lord. Sovereign over all. And so, when we read about Israel casting lots, we should stop and ask ourselves, do I believe God is sovereign to this degree? Down to the casting of a lot. 
Do I believe he's sovereign to this degree? Friends, it's one thing to affirm God's sovereignty in a doctrinal statement. It's another thing entirely to live in light of that doctrine. Holding to God's sovereignty requires not only that we believe certain things about salvation, but also that we believe certain things about everyday life. This is what it means to live a God-centered life. We confess that God exists and that chairs fall according to His will. Hold on. I am unusually fast for a 36-year-old man. And you were about to see me run. I just said a second ago, there's no random. But there is frightening. (laughs) This is what it means to live a God-centered life. We confess that God exists, that this is His world, and that He intervenes in this world according to His wisdom and will. It's not that we turn every moment into a quest for mystical meaning. It's that we see everything in relationship to God as the Sovereign Lord. And understand, friends, God intends this truth to be a great comfort to us. Too often, we make God's sovereignty a point of contention. Just in the last month, there's been a series of inflammatory articles written about those in the SBC who affirm God's sovereignty. And it's always talked about as if it's a reason to get upset and fight with someone. That's not what the Bible means by this doctrine. The Bible means it as a great comfort. Consider the alternative. If God is not sovereign over all things, including the falling of chairs behind those things over there, then our lives are only at the mercy of fate. What's more, if God is not sovereign, then there is no meaning, no purpose behind the vast majority of things that happen to us. We might simply have been at the wrong place at the wrong time. Friends, that's a terrifying world. But thankfully, it's not the world in which we live. So, as we see Israel casting lots here in chapter 10, I don't want us to just breeze past it Instead, I want us to pause and ask ourselves honestly, do I believe in this kind of sovereign God? And in believing that truth, friends, we should take great comfort. As we look back to the scene now, you'll notice the people of Israel encounter a problem at the conclusion of casting lots. Look at the end of verse 20. Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. This is embarrassing. The king is missing. I take this to be a bit of irony on the Holy Spirit's part. Saul, who sought the lost donkeys, is now lost himself. He can't find himself here. So what are the people to do now? Well, they go to the only source of insight they have. They inquire again of the Lord, and God provides further revelation. Notice the end of verse 21. And the Lord said, see it's clear, and the Lord said, behold, He has hidden Himself among the baggage. And then we have what has to be the strangest coronation on record. Notice verses 23 and 24. The people haul the king out from underneath the luggage... Samuel again emphasizes Saul's appearance and the people cry with a shout, Long live the king. Now what are we to make of this? 
the passage doesn't actually tell us why Saul was hiding underneath or behind the bags. Some folks say that Saul was just being humble, which I guess could be the case. It doesn't seem likely to me. Others say Saul was hesitant or even afraid of the responsibility of kingship. That's a possibility. We honestly don't have enough to make a definitive statement as to why he's hiding under the bags. But that's not actually the point, I don't think. What is the point is how vital God's leadership is throughout the process. Think about it, friends. Israel is absolutely dependent on the Lord here. They can't even find their king without God's word. The king is hiding, and it's only through the Lord's help that the situation is resolved. You see, it's a subtle but powerful reminder for the people of God. This king is no substitute for the Lord. That's the point. This king is no substitute for the Lord. In every season, even this new season of kingship, what God's people need most is God's leadership given to him, given to them through his word. So, brothers and sisters, it could be that Saul's hiding is meant to teach us not primarily about Saul, but about ourselves. Like Israel, what we need most is what we've had all along. God's Word. His clear, true, and powerful Word. You see, if we long to know God's leadership in our lives, if we long for God to reveal His will for us, then we must be people who live in daily dependence on the Scriptures. It's troubling to me how often, say, how often people say to me, I'm not sure what the Lord wants me to do. And I say, well, how, how much have you been spending time in the Bible? Well, I don't read the Bible that much. There's correlation there. If we long to know God's leadership, then we must be people who live in daily dependence on the Scriptures. Is that true of your life, friends? Is there a growing dependence on God's Word? Is there a deepening hunger to know what God has revealed in the Bible? If not, then why not start this morning with a prayer for God to give you that kind of hunger? Allow God's Word here in 1 Samuel 10 to have its intended effect. Learn from Israel's dependence. They can't put one foot in front of the other without God's help. So ask God for that same kind of dependence. And then in faith, take up His Word and read. God's Word reveals. And I pray each of us will continue to grow in dependence on that revealing Word. That brings us to the third way God's Word works. This time from verses 25 and 26. Here we see God's Word rules. God's Word rules. After Saul is presented as king, the prophet Samuel does something very important in verse 25. He tells the people the rights and duties of kingship. Understand, this is Samuel's first action following the proclamation. Before anything else, he reads and writes down these duties, these rights. So clearly, these are important, significant matters. The question is, what are these rights and duties? What is so important that it demands Samuel's immediate attention? 
Well, to answer that, we have to go back a ways in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 17 in particular. In Deuteronomy 17, God gave clear instructions for how Israel's king should conduct himself. In fact, listen to what Moses wrote as being the king's very first task in office. This is from Deuteronomy 17. Quote, And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So friends, do you see what Samuel is doing here? He is reminding both the people of Israel and Saul that Israel's king is not an absolute monarch. He's not even really a king in the truest sense of the word. He's like a vice king. Israel's king is himself a man under authority. Saul cannot do whatever he wants. His rule is to be governed by the truth of God's word. What's more, whatever authority Saul does have is to be used to enforce the authority of God's word among the people. This is why Samuel's first act is to read these rights and duties. He wants to make sure that no one forgets, even with a king, it's God's word that has the authority among the life of God's people. And if you go ahead and read in 1 Kings and 2 Kings to see which kings are good and which kings are bad, invariably it's the kings who held fast to God's word who are good, and it's the kings who rejected God's word who fall. Every time. Even with a king, it is God's word that rules over God's people. Now, our situation is different from Israel's here in chapter 10. As Christians, we do not live in a theocracy like ancient Israel where God's law is the rule of the land. And our goal as Christians is not to establish such a kingdom. When the eastern sky splits and Christ descends again on the clouds, then and only then will God's kingdom be fully established here on earth. We do not live in a theocracy. That being said, there is still an important application here for us and it has to do with God's authority. Let me, let me state it very plainly. The only way to honor God's authority as God is to consistently submit yourself to God's Word. There's no other way. There's no alternative. There's no substitute. You can't say, I honor God as God and then not obey His Word. The only way to honor God's authority is to submit yourself to His Word. It's the only way. Now, you might be thinking, that seems rather obvious. Why are you taking time to bring this up? Well, it's because I'm concerned by a growing trend that pits God against His Word as though they were at odds. In fact, I read a statement this week that captures this trend quite well. A, a Christian author said the following statement, quote, The Bible points us to Jesus, not to itself. The Bible points us to Jesus, not to itself. End quote. Now, you can hear the implication this particular author wants to make. If the Bible points us to Jesus and not to itself, then what matters is following Jesus, not the Bible. Don't worship the Bible, this author might say. In fact, he has said that. Don't worship the Bible. Just follow Jesus. 
Here's the problem with that clever sounding statement. The only way to follow Jesus is by following His Word. There is no other way. The only way to honor God's authority is by submitting to the Scriptures. Please, friends, do not fall prey to the foolish scheme that pits relationship with God over against obedience to His Word. There is no relationship to God without obedience to His Word. A professing Christian who consistently disregards the Scriptures is a walking contradiction. At best, such a person is causing confusion. At worst, he or she is misrepresenting the faith. So friends, we should strive for obedience. Obedience. That's not a bad word. We affirm salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We hold up the sovereignty of God's grace and we rejoice. Amen? That doesn't negate obedience. We should strive for obedience. An obedience that is driven by faith. Is that the pattern of your life? Is that the pattern of my life? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not saying we must earn our salvation through our obedience. I am saying that obedience to the Scriptures is essential for a right testimony to the world. This is the way God's authority is displayed for the world to see by His people joyfully and humbly submitting their lives to His Word. It's what we see in seed form here with Israel. It's what we know now as God's people under the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, I hope we see the importance of these things. This is not just about Saul and his kingship. We could spend a long time talking about all the connections between Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel 10. And those are important, but they're not sufficient. This is about more than Saul. This is about your heart and mine. This is about all of us and the testimony we give to the world. God's people have always been a people under authority. That's why we read Romans 13. It was true during Israel's life and it remains true today. God's Word rules. So in response... May we be a people who gladly place ourselves under the authority of the Scriptures. Well, you'll notice there's only one verse left in the passage. Verse 27. And it's here that we see the final way God's Word works. God's Word divides. God's Word divides. After Saul was proclaimed king, most of the people are ready to follow him. That's the thrust of their shout in verse 24, long live the king. But that enthusiasm is not true of everyone. Look again at verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. If you've been with us throughout the series, that word worthless should ring a bell. That's the same word used to describe Eli's wicked sons whom the Lord put to death. So these men in verse 27 are up to no good. They oppose the one whom God has appointed. And they do this even though God's will has been clearly revealed. Don't miss that, friends. The truth is standing before them in flesh and blood and they reject it. 
It's a picture of the human heart apart from God's grace. Flesh and blood truth, we don't want it. In fact, it's worse than that. These worthless fellows oppose the truth with a divisive spirit. They're stirring up strife. Now, in terms of the narrative, we'll see what happens to these worthless fellows next week. That's the connection between chapters 10 and 11. It has to do with these men in verse 27. But for now, I want to make two connections for us from their opposition to Saul. First of all, this should be a reminder to us, friends, that God's truth will always bring conflict with the world. God's truth will always bring conflict with the world. Yes, God's Word unites God's people, and we should praise God for that. But it's also true that God's Word creates division with those who reject the truth. This is how things have been from the beginning. From Cain and Abel on to these worthless fellows in 1 Samuel 10, and now down to us. God's Word divides. And therefore, brothers and sisters, part of being salt and light in this world is being prepared to face that opposition. Listen, to be faithful in making disciples, which is our job, it's our mission, it's our task, to be faithful in making disciples, we need to come to grips with the reality that often when we speak about the Gospel, people will reject both us and the message. I was talking with a brother here in our church who was telling me about a moment of sharing the Gospel with a guy that he sees regularly. And when the Lord presented a clear opportunity to talk about, this, talk about Christ, the guy said no thanks and literally turned around and walked the other way. Those things will happen. We need to come to grips with the reality that people will reject both us and the message. I don't mean that we need to be cynical and assume everybody will want to start an argument with us. But I am saying we need to understand the reality of how God's truth works in the fallen world. And here's why this is important. If we're not ready for the opposition then when it comes, we'll wrongly assume that we're just not cut out for this thing called making disciples. Or I'm just not very good at doing evangelism because people don't listen and and accept. No, friends, that's the wrong conclusion. It's the wrong conclusion. And to guard against it, we need to remember that God's Word does divide. That's That's what's happening in this passage. It's dividing The true from the false in Israel. It divides today. It's what happens when the truth confronts fallen humanity. Opposition rises up. And we should be ready. One more connection I want to make for us from verse 27. And we'll we'll close with this one. You could call this last connection a gospel echo. I just want to explain how I read the Old Testament just for a second here. I take the coming of Christ to be the most significant event in the history of the universe. So if you imagine time and history like a big lake and you throw this great stone into the lake, the ripples spread out in all directions, right? That's how I consider the coming of Christ to be. The the lake is the history of the universe. The stone is the coming of Christ. And the ripples go in all directions. So not only do they go forward and affect us, but they also go backwards so that the pattern of Christ's coming is marked upon earlier events. Even if the people in those events may not understand the full significance that would be Jesus of Nazareth. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's a gospel echo. That's what I mean. 
What exactly happens in verse 27? If you just boil verse 27 down to its core, what exactly happens? God's King is rejected by those He came to save. That's what happens. God's King is rejected by those He came to save. That's what they ask. How can this man save us? Friends, that should sound familiar. Centuries later, God would raise up another king, a promised king, and he too would be rejected by those he came to save. I don't mean that King Saul is a type or a foreshadowing of Christ. I mean that there's a pattern here associated with kingship among God's people. It's the pattern of a rejected king who later delivers those who rejected him. You see, that's the beauty of God's Word. That's the glory of Christ's Gospel, even the mocking question of these worthless fellows should remind us of the Gospel and lead us to worship. We too were blind in our opposition. We too once looked upon God's King and despised Him as nothing. But our God is relentless. And in His mercy, He pursued us with His Word. He subdued our rebellion with sovereign grace. And He gave us eyes to see the glory of Christ our King. Friends, that's our hope as we go out from this place this morning. Our hope is not in our own hunger for the Word. Our confidence is not in our obedience or our faithfulness. Our hope is that King Jesus lived His entire life in obedience to God's Word. That's why He's the King. Not once did the Lord Jesus stray from His Father's will. Not once did He question the commandments God had given. Even at His greatest hour of need, as He hung there agonizing on the cross, bearing the sin of God's people and absorbing the holy wrath of God, what do we find our Lord doing? What is He doing as He hangs there? Quoting from God's Word. Reminding Himself of what God has spoken. Speaking the truth of the Scriptures to His own soul. Brothers and sisters, that man is our hope and our confidence. The Word who took on flesh and now reigns as King over all things. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that through His Word, He has given us eyes to see the glory of Christ our King. May the Spirit make us useful servants. Oh, that we would not waste our lives. That He would make us useful servants for this Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.